Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reel. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Almost Awakened Podcast. Brittany Hartley, how are you doing? I am so good. I you'll never guess what I did this week. I um, yeah, I won't be flew. Able to. <laughs> Yeah, I flew down to Phoenix to visit my father, and he's always kind of struggled with anxiety and depression. And I took down some plant medicine, and this is my active LDS father. And we took a journey together, and it was very healing, like deep, deep therapy, very helpful for him, very therapeutic. And then woke up and his depression was a lot better. And um, so I, I it was my first experience where I was a guide. So as a guide, you take a lower dose so that you're, you can step in with them, but you're not kind of lost in your own space. And so that was super interesting to, uh, it was a new experience for me to let my intuition totally guide. I'm just there with you and my intuition is just going to help guide you wherever you're going, which was a new experience for me. So yeah, I um, did something I thought I would never do with my father and I wish every child could do with their parent. And mm. it was really cool. <laughs> so you can say as little or as much as you want. I'm curious yeah. what plant medicine, I, I would guess shrooms. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And dosage, uh, what did he take and what did you take, if I can ask? If so, yeah, so he was at about three and a half and I was about okay. one and a half. Yeah, so for I me, I had like, I had no vision. I had no visuals. It was low enough that I wasn't didn't have visuals, but it was enough that your ego just kind of takes a nap and my intuition could just kind of like go with him. And that was a new experience to because when you're a guide and you take a lower dose, you're almost kind of straddling. You're straddling their experience and kind of reality so that you can walk with them and not, if I had taken, you know, as much as him, I would have gone off into my own space. So that was a really new experience and something that I really enjoyed and a gift. I really like I'm flying down to Phoenix to offer this gift to my father <laughs> and, um, because he trusted me, he was able to do that. But um, it's something that I hope to learn to do as part of being the spiritual director, that this is maybe one of the gifts. And if I can learn this craft, maybe help guide others through it. But it was really powerful. I've got to imagine that he tackled some real things. There was, you know, every time I've had an experience with mushrooms, uh, and I can relate to the one and a half gram dose, and I can relate to the three and a half gram dose. Um, three and a half grams is a good solid dose. You're going to, you're going to go where the medicine wants you to go. It's, it's going to do its trick. Um, in those experiences, it becomes, I don't know what the right wording is, but it just happens that you tackle things that are just below the surface that need tackling. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm just amazed at that. I'm really grateful that you shared that. And, 
uh, I hope, as you're saying, that that's not only good for him in that moment and the next day, but there's things that have uh, positive consequences weeks and months later and sometimes even years later. Yeah, so my parents got divorced about a year ago, and uh, he just has was really struggled. Just kind of get, you, you know, we all get caught in the story of something. And so this was really helpful to like break out of the story and see it in a different way and process yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say though, I had like, <laughs> I'm such a, you know, I have a long history of being a good Mormon girl and I flew through the airport and <laughs> that um, gave me a little bit of a panic attack, <laughs> but I, uh, I can relate to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wait for the day when this is more accessible because I, I didn't like that aspect of yeah. making this possible. But yeah. if I were to go back, I would do it again because yeah. it was such a gift to my father who has depression and struggling with processing this divorce. And he got to kind of come up for air and take a breath. And that was like, I just still look back and say it was one of the, best gifts that you can give someone. And so it was worth the risk to me, but it was, you know, the risk is there. I'm honest about it. Yeah. No, no. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I've done some of those things enough times. I just, that would have been impressive. And like you say, one and a half is a good way to be somewhat in that space, but not blasting off to your own place. For instance, people, I would recommend no one do, high doses of mushrooms with me because uh, I will hijack your experience and I will uh, be overwhelming to mm-hmm. anybody that's in my space. I just, I don't have any calmness to me in those spaces. <laughs> and I, I kind of start with this assumption that everyone's having the exact same experience. And so are you talkative? Are you talkative during Overly. your experiences? Oh, you, you're yeah. just like processing and talking and that's how you're. I'm sharing all these you're... cool things coming up as if you're seeing oh. those and hearing those oh, and feeling those too, which keeps you from ever having your experience. Yeah. yeah. I'm in the corner crying about some unique version of hell. And that's my friends know like there's Brit over there. She'll be okay. She's just going through some stuff. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the coolest things that happened to me under mushrooms is, you know, in our brains, we can pull out a memory. So say your 10th birthday, whatever memories stick out to you and you can, and you can see it, but you kind of see it as an observer. Like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I got that tricycle at my fifth birthday or whatever thing it is, but it's not like you relive the memory. Um, When I was on shrooms, I had this experience where I've never had it happen before. I literally am back in the memory. I'm, Mm. I can, I can smell my old house. I'm, I'm in the bedroom with my wife. We're sitting on the bed. We're talking. Everything about it was like reliving it. And it, 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 to the extent where it was different than a dream, it was a real memory. And here I am like inside the memory doing it all over again. It was, it was really cool because what it, it taught me is that our brains can do things that we haven't yet fathomed, right? Our, our brains can yeah. do tricks that we haven't even learned yet. Yeah. I just, I'll share, I'll share one thing. So a lot of this experience was processing uh, my mother, like who's central kind of in this divorce and we're yeah. processing all of that. And um, the, there was this moment that came up and, talking about intuition here. So if you would have asked me, do you have any issues or pain that comes up with your mom? And my conscious brain would have said before this experience, no, like we're fine. We're good. Our relationship is fine. 
And then in it, I was talking about how um, like I'm watching my daughter Phoenix and my mom is kind of withdrawing from her because emotional intimacy is really difficult. Anyway, I'm talking about this and all of a sudden I realized that I have this deep pain as I'm watching my mother who was uh, really nurturing when they were newborns kind of emotionally withdraw with my children. And so it's almost as if I'm the six-year-old now watching this happen. And I just never, it was not even on my radar, had no idea that I had some pain about this because it was like one of those things where your intuition's watching and feeling everything, but only a small amount makes it to like your conscious brain. And so like we're having to process things that our intuition is like, ooh, that's painful. I'm not even going to bring it up to conscious brain over here though, but it was there. And so I had to, I had to talk about it. I had to cry about it, you know? And uh, so it was really, that's the power of it. And then what I think is also the power is the next day or the next couple days, you know, the negative thoughts were a little bit less, it's a little bit sunnier in the brain. Um, Yeah, it was really, I just couldn't, I'm watching my dad and I'm just like, I couldn't, um, I can't imagine not giving this gift to him and at least trying to see if it helps. So I did, I tried, I took, I took a risk and uh, it was a really cool experience. I wish everybody could do deep therapy with their parents Yeah, because it was. It is at least nice to know that these things are on the horizon, right? Another 25 years and probably most of the United States will have uh, its, its populace have access to um, plant medicine. And so those that's coming, and it's good because uh, PTSD, depression, these things are showing successes in ways that no other opioid or any other drug is is done. Yeah, and so I'd I'm be excited. curious. I'd be curious to see how it was my first time being a guide, and uh, I was surprised at that I did pretty well in the sense that I let my intuition take over, and I wasn't in my headspace. I was just full intuition, which is hard for me, right? And Uh, so I'd be curious if you could do that. Like, could you, someone you care about, could you really focus on them with like one and a half? Could you focus on them and their journey and go with them? It's a different experience. Anyway. Uh, just a Maven, who's the show producer for another show we do says hypothetical question or shrooms detectable in blood and urine samples. And if so, for how long I'm not aware of any drug test that finds them. And all the reading online that I know about says, essentially you could do mushrooms, without ever being detected in your blood or urine. And hence, if you are drug tested for a job, shrooms, while not, I, I wouldn't do shrooms recreationally. I just don't think it's something you could do twice a week and have fun yeah. with. And how plan, your, if I can ask, how plan, how often do you plan on doing it? Um, for me, it's not as much a positive experience. I learn things, but mm-hmm. I'm very, I'm very alone in the universe and I'm very disconnected from all of my relationships. Mm. And it, it's a very lonely five hours. Mm. Um, at times, it can be funny. At times, I'm learning things. There, there was one, one time where I, I really felt like I learned everything the universe had to give me. And I, and I felt like I had it. Like I was holding on mm. to it. And then as I came out of it, it just all... Hmm. just all went. I, didn't I have actually it did. I did have an experience. You kind of went into like ape history a little bit on one of yours and ayahuasca. Yeah. And when I put my dad to bed, I kind of jumped back into the stream and um, 
I, I actually kind of ended up going there a little bit too, which is a first time thing, but I oh. plan on doing it probably once or twice a year. Yeah. They haven't been, yeah, mine aren't um, unicorns and rainbows either, but it, it's really helpful for, I, I have to, I struggle with depression. I especially struggle with getting stuck in thought loops in depression. So um, really just for mental health, I plan on doing it at least once a year for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah. In the receptors in your brain, you actually can't do it multiple times in a week. Your your brain, um, I don't know how to explain it, but the the receptors in your brain for the for the chemicals that cause you to essentially trip, mm-hmm. um, they essentially get worn out that night. And if you now take it the next day, you would have essentially no effect. You just can't do them day after day. Mm-hmm. And as you're pointing out, same thing. I think the ideal if if you um, if that's the plant medicine that you're drawn to once every three months, once every six months, once a year, somewhere in that range mm-hmm. seems to be about right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And so anyway, um, and again, I just don't think any drug tests are not only not looking for, they just don't find, that's not the thing they're looking for or finding. So as far as I know, there's not a single drug test that looks for magic mushrooms in somebody's blood or, or urine. And uh I just see Dan Hardy's got a comment there, mushrooms once a year for depression, question mark, and he seems to be laughing. The reality is if Dan wants to go look at the data, the data is actually super strong that a single experience with mushrooms, about 75% of people reported as the greatest experience in their life. And the data shows that uh, in dealing with depression or PTSD, uh, a single dose can can do absolute wonders, and so that science yeah. is in the last. Not even just like reduce symptoms, but people can wake up the next day and say, "I have no symptoms of PTSD yeah. or depression," and that yeah. can last for months. Yeah, yeah. I, I know so with Molly, they did uh, they did three therapeutic sessions, and seventy six percent of people had no PT. They reported like one year later, absolutely no PTSD from mm-hmm. what they had before. So it's like a it's like a brain reset, and it it really. It really helped me. So I didn't know we were going to spend so much time talking about this, but it was, that's what I did this week. So cool. No, no, I'm glad I, these are the kind of conversations I think we want to have. Uh, Today's subject we wanted to talk about, I want to talk about friendship and uh, kind of social etiquette. And I just thought, you know, you had brought up and I had brought up um, several months ago that, you know, people had really loved the um, hero's journey conversation where you and I are just kind of riffing off each other. And, we thought going forward, we'd try to um, have a lot of these conversations where we just pick a topic and just kind of talk about it and the things that we've learned or the things that we think would be important to share with our audience. And friendship is a big deal to me. Um, I really love my friends. They're really helpful to me having a happy, healthy life. And they are a huge resource to me for um, continued learning, growth, uh, being accountable to my own behavior. Um, having uh, people who support me the way I am rather than kind of needing me to be something. But I thought where I'd start, and this kind of pisses people off, but I've often said friendship is a myth too. Like everything is myth. And I don't think anybody wants to hear that, but the reality is two human beings in relationship with each other that only works so long as both sides are getting something from it. They're both essentially having Gottman's ratio of so many good experiences to bad experiences. And the moment somebody shifts or moves and becomes something different than what they were the day before, that friendship is also every day changing. And, uh, and friendships 
while they they are real, they also aren't real. Like I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, it, it's how I too. how I would explain that is that you learn at some point that nobody can fully understand your experience of what it is to be you in the world. There's not a single person, Brene Brown herself, and 10 years of being your best friend can still never fully understand what it is at an ex- at the level of experience to be yeah. you in the world. So at some level, you have to actually let that go, which is hard because sometimes, especially in like pop psychology or pop... I don't know, pop culture, you read things like, oh, I just want someone, I just want a partner who understands all of me and just is safe for all parts of who I am. And it's like, mm, good, no. good luck trying. And the best, the best analogy I've heard is that I'm out here in my own wilderness. And the thing that makes the wilderness really nice is finding other people out there in their own wilderness too. And when you talk, you realize that I've been on kind of this mountain. Oh, I've been to a place just like that and we can talk about it, right? But we're not actually in the same place at the at the same time experiencing the same thing. The friendship for me is the camaraderie in knowing that there's other people out here in the wilderness too and talk to me about the things you've seen and the things you've experienced because sometimes you've been a place where I've never even heard of and sometimes we've been to a place Oh, I've been to that place too. I recognize that landmark in my experience too. And then you feel not so alone, but you're still in your own wilderness. Yeah. That's how I kind of process that. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the Buddhist idea is that everyone's living their own dream, right? You're inside your head as the center of your own story and somebody else next to you while they bump into you from time to time. The reality is they're having a completely separate dream and relationships ebb and flow. So I've got folks in my life who are still friends, but they were really good friends a year ago or five years ago. And now they're, they're friends still, but it's different. And I've have other folks who aren't my friend anymore for whatever reason, relationships are always changing. There is nothing that stands still and and you're changing, they're changing. And so of course the relationship itself is going to change. And I think it's really healthy and tell me if you made the shift in your marriage too, but I think it's really healthy to be honest and admit that different people uh, bring out different sides of us. Right. So uh, I have friends that pull out, you know, different parts of me. And I think one of the reasons that, uh, marriages are just, you know, we set these up to fail is, is that we almost set marriage up to fail in, in Mormonism in a way that like your partner is your end all be all right. Like your partner is the one that's going to understand your experience and be the one you laugh with and be the one. And then like, you know, you have these you have these men who like won't do business with females because like I have a wife and like, I can't do anything without my wife. And it almost sets the marriage up to have so much pressure that this person is going to be everything. And then you end up having two lonely people because nobody can be everything for anyone. And so Mm. my marriage got so much better when my need for philosophical conversations, when I like outsource that and found friends for that, who really love that instead of trying to force my partner to be that person when he wasn't like that helped my marriage a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is a lesson I've had to learn in the last few years as well, that none of us can be everything to everyone. 
And the expectation of what a spouse or a friend will be on the front end of life is completely different of the reality of it, or at least closer to the reality of it. So I, I can completely relate to that. I was thinking about, you know, a couple of things that we could go into in this topic. One is vulnerability and belonging. And my first thought here is that you and I have both been in systems where everybody needs to fit a role and fit in a box. And the friendships are very surface level. And I don't, I don't mean that offensively. They just are because everything that's taboo, every piece of vulnerability, because vulnerability is you sharing the things that you fear that you'll receive shame over. And so by being vulnerable, you are putting out things to a friend, to a loved one, where you feel afraid that maybe this person's going to judge you or feel shame. So in a high demand fundamentalist religion, all the things that are taboo, all the things that are sin, all the things that aren't allowed to be talked about, those are the things that we feel shame over if we're if we're built those ways that are um, admonished against by the religious system. And so these friendships that I had, I could only give so much of myself to them. I could only say so many things. And if I said too much, I risked being an outsider in the community. So I deconstruct the system. I go back into the world to make new relationships. And I have all these friends. And we think, like I hear people who are deconstructing Mormonism, for instance, and stepping away. I hear folks say things like, you know, the system made me had all these boundaries and all these rules. And I had to be all these things that I, that weren't me. And when I left, I got to be completely me and got to do all the things I wanted to do. And I, I kind of, I kind of chuckle at that because that's not real either. That even though I think I have really good friends that were similar enough that there's a lot of room for me to be myself. The reality is that there are still boundaries and rules inside my new community to the point where if you think your friends, you know, are really willing to tolerate every bit of you have a shit show for three or four times in a row while you're around them and see if how, how quickly they're calling you to go out for coffee again. Mm. Um, you still have to compromise parts of yourself to be what the collective is willing to tolerate. Now there's a lot more space perhaps, but it's not, it's not a free for all. I think that is such an important, important narrative for post-religious spaces because you're right. And it reminds me of, I'm going to quote Cami Hurst here, who was on our show, the sex therapist. And she says a lot of what she sees in her office is people claiming their authenticity, but it's just doing the opposite of kind of what they were told to do. And so if you tell a child, don't eat all the chocolate in the house. And just to spite you, you know, I'm my own self. I'm going to eat all the chocolate in the house. Well, you're still kind of in the system, right? Yeah. You're still, you're, you're responding opposingly, but you're still kind of sucked into to the system. And so she said something like, you know, it takes a lot of maturity to find authenticity that just isn't the opposite of the boundaries that you had, right? That mm. takes a lot of maturity to say, I'm going to be vulnerable here. I'm going to test these waters, but I'm going to respect people's boundaries and space and where they're at and all these things. That's a, that's a narrative that we don't hear enough in post-religious spaces because the overwhelming narrative is out here, we're free and we can do whatever we want and look at us be free without so many rules. And it's like, there's a, 
there's a shadow to that side of thinking too, which is you are, you become a bulldozer with your authenticity and yeah. that's not healthy for relationships too. And we don't right. hear that enough in post-religious spaces. So I make the note that good friends allow you to be significantly more of your authentic self without shame. But again, this space also still has boundaries. Um, you've got a couple notes here too, it looks like. Yeah. So a shift um, that I like to work with people when they're trying to like break out and make friends for the first time, because for a lot of people deconstructing, it's really like, how do I make friends for the first time without this kind of like, uh, fitting in scaffolding, right. That we've used this kind of crutch that we've used. And one of the things is shifting that when you're going into a social situation, the goal is I'm going to be as much of myself as is appropriate, right? That's the goal that my inner child is safe, that I feel like I was myself. That's the goal versus I'm going to go and try to be liked and try to be loved. Because when you go with the intent of I'm going to this group of people, I really want them to like me. I'm going to manipulate what I do. And, and uh, I'm going to laugh at jokes that aren't really that funny. And I'm going to try to fit in there so that they'll see me and then they'll love me. When you go in with that approach, um, you're really setting yourself up for uh, either you're going to feel like you fit in, but you had to, you had to, to contort yourself to fit in or you're not going to fit in and you're going to feel a ton of shame. It's going to be, I tried to get these people to like me and they didn't. Therefore I am broken. That's like, that's where our brain goes. And so the shift that I think is really helpful is to go into situations and think I'm going to be as much of myself as I can. That's the goal. And if you did that, then you win. Like, I did it. <laughs> like that was a successful social outing. And some of those times people are really going to respond to that authentic self of you. And sometimes not, but the goal is that you always show up. You don't shrink, you don't puff up, you show up and let yourself be seen as much as it is appropriate. Yeah. I like that. I was, I was at a party a few weeks ago, probably were 50 to 75 people there. And, uh, all through the night, everybody was finding the little pods, little groups where they could share pieces of themselves. It just felt very accepting. Um, by the end of the night, people are sitting out in the backyard and just kind of either laying down or sitting down and just really connect with each other. There was a, a band that played that night. It, it was just a, a really fun experience. It was one of these rarities, which most parties, I can sense that people are really uncomfortable they they second guess the things they say they're not sure if if how much of themselves are going to be accepted or not and this is one of those moments where it just felt like everybody got what they came for they they got their needs met whatever those were and uh, and i don't think that happens much i think most of the time we are in our inside our own heads trying to be parts of ourselves and fearful that it's not working that people are rejecting us that Someone else has a perspective that runs counter to ours. And so we're bumping into each other a little bit. And I think most people go home from a, a social gathering kind of beating themselves up and trying to figure out, you know, if what they said was okay or if what they did was okay. 
And it's yeah. unfortunate because I don't think most of us feel that way about the other people at the party. We just do I know. it for ourselves. I know. It's our pri- our primal brains. Like we're just really um, trained to know where we are in a social hierarchy, right? That's our that's our brain history is where are you in this social hierarchy? Because if you're not anywhere and not being accepted on this social hierarchy, you are dead, right? You're outside the cave and you're dead. And that's why it's like for our brains, like such a big deal, does this person like me? And so it does take a little bit of thought work to get through that and say like, oh, I wasn't this person's cup of tea. Like I'm actually not going to die. And so it's interesting that the thing that we do is the biggest barrier. So Brene Brown says fitting in is the biggest barrier, is the primary barrier to belonging. So the thing that we're doing to try to belong is the biggest barrier to actual belonging, which is these little moves that we do to try to fit in, right? Mm. And so um, it's so interesting that it's one of those times where our brains uh, because of its history, it's not fitting kind of what we're needing in reality. It's kind of like our brains. If you start eating sugar, your brain says, eat all this sugar because there may not be food again, right? Because we still have these little very paleolithic brains. When in reality, I have sugar around me all of the time. <laughs> I will never be, I will never not have enough sugar. And so it's this thing that you kind of have to do with your brain to kind of shift. Mm-hmm. I know it feels like it's going to be scary to not do those little moves to try to fit in, but you'll actually feel be- more belonging if you step into that space that can feel scary. Yeah. Yeah, something you said there connects to this next idea, this, I mean, how to build authentic friendships after religious deconstruction. And I've thought a lot about this, and I, I, feel, I feel like this isn't, this isn't always possible. And here's what I mean. I think the folks who tend to deconstruct are the folks who don't exactly fit in in the first place. It's easier for those folks. So if you're a little quirky, if you're a little eccentric if you're whatever whatever the things are that make you you i feel like the folks who end up in religious deconstruction there's a higher percentage of folks who don't exactly fit in anyway and and so for me i i think it came pretty easy i just started having gatherings i started to uh, essentially try to collect people i would go out with you know five people and two of them i would know and three would be new and two of those three, I just really got along with. So I reach out to those two again and invite them to the next party. And now there's, you know, five people that I know. And now there's two new people or three new people. And just over time, I had collected, and again, I don't mean to like objectify people or anything, but I had collected all these really good humans that I wanted to be in space with that made my life enjoyable. And when we were talk, talking to Bart Campolo in that two-part interview, you know, he said, there's got to be a place for the misfits. And and I worry sometimes that it's not easy for a lot of folks to make connections. Um, so I don't want to sit and talk about it like it's easy. But as you're pointing out, you have to put yourself out there. You have to try. You, and so I think the easiest way, it, it, I'm really lucky. I live in Southern Utah. So having ex-Mormonism be kind of the first degree of interaction for most people in this area, that just works well. It gives us that kind of common bond. And yeah, then very it's trauma quickly, bonding, and then you can go from that. Move into other things. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine if I still lived in Ohio and had deconstructed my system, 
how I would find friends. I mean, I go to the bar and I just start talking to strangers and like, I don't even know how I would do that. Mm. And so it's easy in, in Utah for my life experience to be able to connect with somebody at the very beginning of a conversation and build some bridges and see if we like each other. Um, I don't think it's easy for everyone. I think for some folks, it is, it's really difficult. And, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to diminish that. Like, I, I think we just have to own it and say sometimes building community for some folks is really tough, yeah. but you do need friends. Everybody needs a few people that they can lean on and enjoy life with and go through life with. Yeah. So a couple of things come up here. Uh, unfortunately, the answer for everyone is going to be vulnerability, right? So even for the person who uh, maybe is not as extroverted as you or doesn't have as many um, opportunities, you know, you've had this podcast, you meet people, you have some, you did have some resources there for building a tribe. Yeah. Um, but even for people who don't, I was talking to a client last week who uh, just really wanted better male friendships. And I do think this is one of the areas where um, women tend to do better than men in the sense that one of the, the things that we do to men is that we, in, in any kind of patriarchal religion, is we shame them for being a part of patriarchy. And then when they leave, there's no kind of social place for men to be vulnerable, right? So if I wanted to ask six girlfriends out to dinner to talk about my marriage or whatever, that's socially acceptable, but it's less socially acceptable for men. And so I do think this is a place where especially men struggle post-religious deconstruction because you do have to reach out vulnerably, which is really hard and really not modeled in society. And so they're out there without the church now, without any modeling, really just being a weirdo, asking people to go to coffee. And uh, that, can, that can be difficult because now you're fighting against some social norms. And that is hard. But these still, even so, the answer that, to that is still going to be vulnerability. So this guy was going to yoga classes and there were lovely women and men there, but mostly women. Yoga is mostly a female space. And he wanted to be friends with these women without coming off like a creep, which is another hard thing for men, right? Yeah. You have these social norms. And so the answer to that was to do it with full vulnerability. And so I challenged him that week to go up to a woman and say, I, I, I'm just going to be vulnerable with you here. I think you women are amazing. I know that you guys go out for coffee after yoga. I need some better friends and I would love to join you. And I'm just afraid that I would seem like a creep, but I'm not. I'm just really trying to find better friends. Like that's vulnerable. That's sharing what he actually feels, which is I really like you women, but I'm scared that, and I want to have better friends, but I'm scared that I'm going to come off as a creep and I'm not trying to. Like that was what he was really feeling. So the answer as far as what to do in that situation was to actually lead with that and see what happens. Because when people, because that was the best way to like deescalate the situation. When he led with vulnerability, the woman was actually able to respond with her own vulnerability. Oh yeah. I, I need better friends too. Come join us, you know? So there's a lot of tricky things here. Um, Sometimes it can be harder for men than women just because of social norms, which is why I wanted to ask you, 
you're someone who has, um, you know, you, you had some resources to be able to build a tribe, both in your personality and then the podcast. And then you can do a lot of trauma bonding with ex-Mormonism and build from there. Those are a lot of resources. But something that you've done that I haven't seen very many men do is that you enjoy touch in your relationships it's one of your love languages so tell me what it was like like the first time you're a mormon man all we do is shake hands like unless it's your wife you just shake hands so how did you make the transition or how did it feel the first time you said like do you mind if i put my arm around you like how did you go through that process yeah great question i wasn't when i printed off the outline i saw that you had added that i thought oh here we go so we'll um one is I did just what you said a moment ago, which is I was vulnerable. I would constantly be telling group after I'd built a relationship with people, after people could see that I was a decent human being and that I was trustworthy, I would notify them that, hey, like touch is my love language. And if anybody ever wants to be in space with me and sit down next to me and put an arm around me or hold my hand, I welcome that. And as I went from went to parties and went to social gatherings, if you if you're if you're around real people enough, if you, if you, you'll start to sense that everybody's trying to figure out, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people are trying to figure out how they can get more intimacy from, from their life. And so you start to sense these conversations and you start to see that folks are trying to figure that out. And so I'd go to a party and you just, like, again, this party I was at a couple of weeks ago, you could tell right away that there were certain people who needed physical connection and they would sit next to somebody else who also needed physical connection. Like they just found each other. Um, and that's not really going to be helpful to the audience, but by, by notifying folks, again, I'm not a creeper, but I really mm-hmm. like connection. I really like mm-hmm. intimacy. I really like um, physical touch. And, and so when I'm at gatherings, I can kind of sense other people there who are also wanting that. I'm also lucky in that some of my friends modeled that for me. I've got mm-hmm. one friend, Chris, um, who, and not the Chris you're thinking of, but another Chris mm-hmm. who uh, very much is in that same mold. He really is an extrovert. He really wants to be in physical space with other people. And so he just takes risk. So he mm-hmm. will go sit next to somebody and put an arm around them. And you just see over the course of one party or three parties that his intentions are good. He doesn't come off as trying to manipulate anybody. And so I could easily see modeled like, hey, if you're just a normal person and you're not looking to manipulate someone, like you do you do have chances to have access to that, those things. Um, I don't even know how it per se happens. I know I've been to numerous parties where I just sit down next to somebody and you can kind of feel this little dance going on. Like I need that. I want that, you know, and suddenly you're holding hands with somebody. You've got an arm around someone. My wife, everybody comes to her for her hugs. She'll hug you super Mm. long. And her hugs seem like people walk away going like that hug did more for me than anything else tonight. Yeah, I have and, one friend like that who it's it's actually one of my guides who when she hugs me, like she holds my soul. And I don't know how to explain how she does yeah. that, but she does. Um, does that. Yeah, interesting. So I think if I were to have some like answer here, if someone were to ask me, how do I find, you know, how do I build this tribe? 
post deconstruction, I think the first thing is like, you've got to find a platform first, right? So for both of us, that platform was, we kind of made groups to process deconstruction, which is actually pretty common for the religion that we come from. Um, there's groups in almost every major city. And I literally four years ago looked around and said, I need to talk about this with other people and I need better friends. Um, and we started gathering people for this group. And now we don't really meet so often. We don't really do trauma bonding anymore because now we're best friends. Like, but we had a, you have to have a platform first. So like we play soccer together, we do yoga together. And then I really like this person. And then I start building something. So you do have to like be intentional as far as like, where is the platform where I can at least like meet people um, who are maybe interested in doing in, in deeper friendships. And then once you have that platform, you're just like, you're a vulnerability machine. Hey, I, I really like you. And I just, it's almost like, you know, as an adult, you're almost like asking, it feels like you're asking someone to go out on a date when you're trying a new friendship. Like, Hey, I really like your vibe and I really think you're cool and interesting. And I would love to like pick your brain and, get to know you more do you want to go for a coffee like yeah it feels a little weird you're asking someone on a date um but when you lead with that vulnerability if they say no then they say no and you still led you know you still led with yourself and it's a little sad but it's not crushing because you didn't need their love you're just leading with this is me and i'd like to get to know you right and so I do think you have to find that platform first, which is why I really do encourage a lot of people to, if you don't have a place where you can deconstruct with other people to make that place, because those will become your best friends. Um, and then after you kind of have that platform, you just have to always be literal, always be uh, leading with vulnerability Um as much as is socially appropriate and giving other people the chance to respond. That's going to be how you belong. You're muted. If you're not in places where you have an instantaneous connection. So say again, Southern Utah, the faith community we came from, there's just tons of people here and that becomes really easy as kind of a first layer of connection. But if you're in places where that's not easy, it's not obvious there are other things, right? There's hiking groups, there's ballroom dancing groups, there's dungeons and dragon groups. I mean, mm -hmm. whatever your thing is, there yeah. are groups of people out there doing it. And maybe you don't find anything that's your thing. Maybe, maybe you don't know what your things are, or maybe there isn't uh, a group that represents whatever your thing is. In that case, you have to take another step and try something new, join yeah. something I think maybe you'll like. Yes. Um, my wife and I did. It's like dancing. dating. It's like dating for new possible people. So you're not even on the date yet with an actual person. You're just, I don't even know what kind of person I like. So I'm just going to go on a bunch of dates. Yeah. What do they call that? That rapid fire dating. What, is, what yeah. do they call and <laughs> I don't it's know. Kind of like I've that. never done it. <laughs> so Amanda and I did ballroom dancing lessons um, back in Ohio when we lived there. And we went for like two years and there were folks that we connected that. with. Um, yeah, we do a decent rumba and a decent swing, but uh, hmm. not so good on the cha-cha. So. See, I learn things about you every time we talk. Good. <laughs> and so there are ways to put yourself out there so that you at least have some sort of commonality. Even if it's your first time trying some new thing, you're there because of the purpose of that group. So say it's a hiking group, you now have a chance to start the conversation with questions about hiking or insights about hiking, whatever it is. Um 
you got to put yourself out there. And I think that's the scariest part sometimes is going like, Hey, I don't even know where to start. And the reality is you just got to be in space with other humans. And as you point out, be yourself and invite whoever you connect with to, to meet up again, to do something new, to go grab a coffee Mm -hmm. or to go to dinner. And honestly, some of like really my best relationships are all people where either I saw something or they saw something in me where there was a text during the week. Hey, I I just would love to take you out to coffee. You just seem super interesting to me. I'm trying to make better. Like I've had many text conversations that started with, I'm really trying to make better friends and have better women in my tribe. And I'd really like to, to get to know you better. Uh, Either me doing that to someone or them doing that to me. And like, that's how it started. And um, so leading with vulnerability, it it is scary, um, but that's the only way through. It's just the only way through. Yeah. We're going to get here into some traits of what makes a good friend. The first place I wanted to start was recognizing that your friends will have different gifts. It's not like everybody is the same human. They're all different. And so as I was looking, I was thinking about friends that, that are my, my friends, I was thinking, you know, I can, I can name uh, a certain individual who is the best in the group at remembering people's names, like your children's names and the events in your children's lives. Like she, she does a beautiful job of kind of holding on to all that information. And every time she sits down with you, she asks how each one of your kids are doing by name. Mm-hmm. She, she knows what we talked about the last time we were together mm-hmm. in shared space. And she's going like, hey, how did things how did things go after that last time when we talked mm-hmm. about your kid having yeah. this challenge or that kid having that like challenge? That. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't notice that as a gift among all my friends. There's a very select group and she's the best, but there's a very mm-hmm. select group of people who kind of have that information at their recall. Um, We have friends who offer safe spaces to be vulnerable first. Like they're the first ones to be vulnerable and they invite you into vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Um, We have friends who are really humorous. They just do a hell of a good job of making you laugh. So no matter what's going on, you're, you're just going to have laughs that night. If that person's in the room, Um, there are people who hold me accountable. I have friends who, when I screw up, they come to me, put an arm around me and go, Hey Bill, like, that thing you did wasn't, wasn't cool. Mm. And so I know that I know I can trust them to be honest about what's healthy or unhealthy as they perceive me acting in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who have zero judgment. I have friends who see my diverse experience and perspective is just as legitimate as theirs. Um, I remember being at a party once and we were all talking about the universe and our beliefs around God. And in that group was somebody who believed in reincarnation. There was somebody who believed that plants uh, have a consciousness and could communicate to them. Uh, We had friends who um, still were in kind of a religious paradigm. It, It was, it became obvious that everybody was in a different place. And I think I'm right about the world. But sure, like we all think we're right about the world. Can you allow somebody to be very different than you and you honor that, hey, there's really no way to know if they're right or I'm right. The reality is I need to uh, honor their life experience and their perspective as just as valid as mine. Um, So there are those kinds of things. So what would you say if I were to ask your friends what your friendship gift is? What is your friendship gift? Um, what do you offer to your friends? Yeah. Zero judgment. Like they can do, they can do good or bad in the world. And 
we can talk about that and I don't have any attachment to needing them to be anything different than they are. Um, because I want to be me and I don't feel it's safe and I feel lots of fear of shame. I'm one of those who very quickly will jump into the taboo and make it, I'll expose myself first and make it completely safe for you to expose yourself. Mm. And um, we just had a party at our house the other night. I had just met a couple like a month earlier at a party at my home, first time meeting them. And they're like, Hey, we want to hang out again. I said, perfect. Let's do it. So we had an event last, uh, last week at my home and it was this couple and they brought two other couples with them. Again, these other four people I'd never met ever. And the one couple I'd met once. And we went out to dinner, had a great time. And very quickly, they perceived that I was a safe person to be themselves around. So as they came back to our house, we got in the hot tub, had a few drinks and everything. It became very obvious quickly that everybody was just wanting to be seen and have validation and be themselves. And it really worked out so beautifully um, because the space was safe for that. I'm not the person who's going to remember your kids' names. I'm not the person who's going to know what we talked about the last time and rehash those events unless it's something that really sticks in my mind and most things don't. Um, We all come to the table with certain gifts and we ought to recognize that it's because humans are different. And if you can put a collage of friends together that all have different gifts, I think it benefits your tribe um, drastically. Mm. I think if, if my friend, I'm think I'm trying to think of, this is maybe one of those questions that's easier for your friends to answer about you than you to answer about yourself. But if, when I'm thinking of like, when my friends reach out to me and say like, I need to talk to like you, like nobody else, like Brit, I think the gifts that I have are, I think I have two. One is that if you're in a really dark place, uh, for whatever reason, I'm just a really, really safe person for that, which is which is one of the reasons why I wanted to be a spiritual director is because when people reach out to meet with like a spiritual guide, it's usually because they're in they're in existential crisis, right? And um, because I've maybe just spent time in that space, and I tend to have gone further down that rabbit hole than most people. Um, if you're in like a dark night of the soul, like I'm definitely like the friend in your circle that you want to call. Like I, I can really sit with you in that space. And then the second one is I think language. I have a lot of friends who such a language person. It's kind of my creativity. Um, in some of like my podcasts, my solo podcast that I've done on here, I'll try to kind of like, I'm painting a picture through language. And so if someone is having like feelings or emotions, or they're trying to make sense of something, and they're just kind of pouring it out, I can kind of give language to it and give it back, which, which can sometimes be really helpful, especially if someone's not as language oriented. Um, I really process a lot through language. And so I think some of my friends have found it helpful to like, you know, call me for coffee and just like help me process this thing and I can give words to things. So I would say those two are the ones that like, if you're, if you're in a dark night of the soul or you want to really process something with, with some language and help me just kind of paint this picture here, I would say that those are two of my gifts there. 
But one, one other one that I was thinking of that Brene Brown talks about something that you need to explore if you want to have good friends is to find ways to play where there's no other purpose other than um, to just play. And as soon as she said that, I knew like, that's the one that, because like I enjoy these heavy spaces and these philosophical spaces, that's the one that I struggle with the most is playing with friends. Mm. And so she said that you have to find ways to laughter, song and dance. And those three, if you were raised in a fundamentalist Puritan kind of religion are going to be hard um, hard to let go and to laugh and sing and dance and be silly and do nothing in that moment, except you're playing. And the purpose is just to play at like your children and to find way to find people who are adults who can do that with you. And I would say that's one that I'm not, um, I'm not great at yet. And I need to practice more. So this person says, just a question, why do we need friends? We've been married almost 40 years and never had friends in or out of religion. We are very happy. And I'll note, like, not everyone is a social creature. Um, but the human race generally is. Like, we are social creatures. We have um, been able to survive for as long as we have as a human race because of our collaboration and uh, connection with each other. Um, we're not the strongest animal. We're not the toughest predator, but by working in groups and working together, we've been able to essentially become the apex animal on the planet. And uh, we do need, we do need social interaction. Most of us. And I do know some married couples where the compatibility is really high. So lucky for you, like you hit the jackpot, whoever, whoever wrote that question where, um, you know, you must then play together and laugh together and have deep conversations together and all the elements of who you are. There's some compatibility that makes that partner your best friend. And so maybe you need to outsource that less. But I will say there's got to be even in those great, great marriages, which are really lottery marriages. Um, there's still probably at least one aspect of you where it's not compatible, Right. Um, maybe she's not the best person or he's not the best person for this kind of conversation or going fishing or, you know, there are a thousand facets to who you are. Uh, it's great that most of those line up with your partner. That's really amazing. But there's going to be a couple spaces that don't, that it may be really fulfilling uh, to explore that with another person, just so all of you is really seen and loved somewhere, even if not in that marriage. So, um, so that, yeah, some people need that more and less. My husband and I have a lot of compatibility for our values. Um, but as far as like going into deep spaces, that would be, we're not as compatible there. And so we, we know that he loves to go hiking, um, and like triathlons and that doesn't super interest me. And so he goes in triathlons with his friends and I go to, uh, lunch dates where we talk about the meaning of life and we're totally open with that. So it's really finding those places where, um, you're not totally compatible and finding friends that can fill that. So you can feel like, uh, all of you is, is seen and loved by at least someone, which can, which really makes you feel really whole and safe and loved and belong. You, you have this note here, being cool is the straight jacket. 
What do you yeah, mean? Yeah, it's that? something that she says, something Brene Brown says. So some of my notes have been just listening to Brene Brown and and jotting down what she says because obviously she's the re, you know lead researcher on how do we do relationships better. And so for laughter, song, and dance, she said the number one reason why adults don't do that is because we want to look cool. And so being cool or trying to appear cool or feeling like we should be cool or does a cool person do this, all of that narrative in our brains is the thing that shuts off adult play. And so that was really interesting. Uh, and so I want to next time that I have the opportunity to sing or dance, I had one, I think the last time that I really had an opportunity and I missed it, like, I'll be honest, I, I missed it was I went to like a pagan women's night and we were doing like a moon ceremony and we were walking and it's kind of, it's almost like a trance. So you're walking uh, to this certain rhythm and it's very meditative and you're doing it with other women and you kind of actually go into a little bit of a trance. It's, it's very interesting. And then at some point, the, the older lady who was um, this beautiful, beautiful soul really has this really strong earth, earthy spirituality. And she just began to freely dance, just whatever her body wanted to do. And she was opening the space that, hey, if you want to move your body here, however you want to, just let it go. Let's dance. And some of the women did, but most of us didn't. And I was the one that I just, I just, I couldn't get there. I couldn't get there. So it's something that I want to cultivate more because I'm not great at it. And when I think of um, adult play, I really think of sports. Sports is where I like to play the most. But then I, I, I had a, I tore my ACL a few years ago, and and so I, I'm noticing that by losing my ability to play sports, I've lost a huge outlet for adult play that I haven't replaced. And that that's a that's a need. And I noticed it when I was kind of preparing some notes for this. So I definitely want to learn how to play better as an adult. I've always wanted to sing and dance socially. And I've always felt this immense amount of shame. Like I'm not a good dancer and I'm not a good singer. So I'm not even going to try. I have seen you do karaoke. Yeah. In the last I've couple seen of years. You rap. I've, yeah. The last couple of years, I have stepped out of my comfort zone and just decided to do it anyway. Good for you. And it is fun. Um, if that's something you're pulled towards, my two cents is do it anyway. I have friends who dance very uniquely and they, they, they risk potential mocking and shame but it never comes across that way. They just dance themselves. You know, they just dance the way yeah. they dance. If and anything, I'm envious. Like, look at that guy doing his thing over there. I wish I could yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. So I, I think I think when you own it, I, I don't – and you're around people who want to be them, they're going to make room for you to be you, and they accept those differences pretty easily. And so I, I it feels like a big risk. But I don't think it's as big. Once you find folks that want to be vulnerable, they're going to give you room to be vulnerable too. Mm -hmm. And and it even though you feel like it's a huge risk, it really I don't think is. Yeah. Um, and so I I thought the last time I saw you, you had posted something, or I can't remember where I saw it, where you were rapping and doing karaoke, and I was just I was immensely just like proud of you, like like because I know that it took I know where you came from, like I know who you were ten years ago, right? Who would have that you would have really struggled with that 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. And, um, 
And I just thought, good for you. So I started thinking to myself, what would I do if I was in that scenario and do karaoke? Like, what would be, what would be my expression of play in this kind of karaoke space? And the thing that came to mind, and I'll have to do it someday because now I'm you're you're gonna hold me accountable. Is I love the um, I love the musical Hamilton because I'm a history person and I can rap the whole thing. And so I was like, you know, if I could do anything. I would just want to rap Hamilton and just go for it in public. Like that would be, that would be a uniquely Brit style of play. So that's going to be my challenge to myself. I'm going to find some way to rap Hamilton with friends who can appreciate me doing my weird thing. Okay. That's, Maybe I'm we'll make that it. happen when you're in Southern Utah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I put here, you know, qualities, trust, equality, Compassion, honesty, independence talks about those being the foundation of a strong and healthy friendship. Um, it can be hard to recognize when a friendship is weak in some areas. It is always possible to improve yourself and your relationship with a friend. Um, there is an accountability. I, I I remember in the past. Um, I remember at a party I said something very sexist, and I was trying to be funny, but it, it wasn't. And this friend uh, had enough wherewithal to go like, hey, Bill, let me take you aside. Let me just tell you, like, that was that was a dick move. And uh, and she was right, 100% right. And in friendship, we have to have some space to be corrected and to have somebody go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know you're trying to be you, but you're, you're bumping too hard into someone else. And so I, I love this idea of, like, accountability where – if you really care about your friends and you really want to be in relationships where they care about you, there has to be some safe space for feedback and for criticism. And, and if we can't take criticism, if we're just adamant that I'm just going to be me at the expense of bumping into others, then you're probably going to struggle to maintain friendships. And, and I think some friendships start off really strong. And as you get to know each other, you begin to see whatever flaws somebody has. And sometimes they just bump into each other too hard. Um, I had a party at my house about a month, month and a half ago, and it was it was open to anybody. Anybody could come. It was announced in the Southern Utah uh, post-Mormon group. And so a bunch of people came that I didn't even know. And this one gentleman comes, and his his point of view was so at odds with mine that I, I just couldn't have been I, – I just – it would have been it would have been all the work in the world to be friends and so I didn't want to be rude to him. I, I essentially said to him, because he he made his point, and his point was very traumatic for me and triggering for me. And I, I just stated my different perspective and essentially said, like, you're you're just too far away from where I'm at. I'm not going to be able to engage you in this space. It's too hard for me. And I had to walk away. And I wasn't trying to hurt his feelings. I wasn't trying to 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 be an to be rude or be an ass, but it really was where the way that person saw the world was so different than the way I saw the world. So as you're pointing out too, as we're trying to meet new people, you're just not going to be a fit for everyone. Some folks aren't a good fit for you and that's okay. Like you're allowed to go like, this is not, this isn't going to be a space that I'm going to benefit from. Yeah. Um, But if, yeah. And if you're leading from, I'm going to be myself, then you're setting it up so that even if it doesn't work out, it's not because you're broken right? Mm, it's not because right. they're rejecting you. Just, just didn't work out. Move on to yeah. the next person. But um, yeah, what came to mind there was when a, a dear friend of mine 
who's still active in the church. And because our relationship was so important, we have kept our friendship, even though uh, she's active in, you know, now I'm not. And there was one, it was one of those times where she checked me uh, because our relationship was so valuable to her and, and bless her for that. So there was one time she sent me a picture of, um, it was her uh, son passing the sacrament and she just meant it as like, look how cute. Right. And I was just in a mood. Like I was in a pissy mood. It was Sunday. I was, I don't know. I don't know what my issue was. I was going through something and I just snapped back something like, you know, I wish your older daughter could do that too. Right. Because I'm in a pissy mood and I'm going through, I'm angry at something. And so she took some time and then she responded back and she said, I'm saying this because, you know, our relationship is so important to me because if it wasn't important, then you just like, man, that guy's a jerk and I'm just not going to invest anything more in this relationship. But because the relationship was important to her, she reached out and said, I just need you to know how that made me feel. And um, I was just sharing a picture of my son with you. Like that wasn't okay to just snap at me like that. And uh, and she was right. And I apologized. But the reason she did it was because she wanted to invest in our friendship. And so you have to check each other when you hit a boundary with each other. And if you don't, then the relationship dissipates in some way, right? Because because someone stepped on a boundary and you didn't say anything. And now you're just going to start to kind of go like this. So to her credit, she she checked me on it and I apologized but it was because the relationship was something she wanted to invest energy in. And so we do have to do that and be subject to that to our friends from time to time. Yeah. To, to be silent means that like you point out going forward, you're going to reduce the number of times you're in that person's space. Yeah. If, if you're like, man, that person just pisses me off every time with this thing rather yeah. than speak up about the thing and let them know and give them a chance to kind of self-correct how they're bumping into you you just eventually just decide you don't want to be in that person's space at all. And I'm not going to say often or very little, I'm not going to give a degree to it, but there are certainly places where a little self-correction could have happened and the friendship could have stayed really strong. And, um, but an inability to be honest with another person about where they're bumping into you. Um, it feels less risky on the front end, but it ends up often destroying a friendship. Right. Right. Um, I wanted to skip ahead. We're, we're sort of heading towards running out of time here. So I wanted to skip ahead a little bit. There's this Buddhist story, the story of an eager young monk. And I don't know how to pronounce that. Magiha who wanted to practice meditation alone in an especially peaceful and beautiful mango grove. But Magiha's meditation was anything but peaceful and beautiful to his shock. He found his mind, a snarl of malicious, lustful, and confused thoughts, probably because his practice was too self-involved. When Magiha rushed back to report his confusing experience, Buddha was not surprised. He took the opportunity to give Magiha what he must have hoped was a relevant teaching. Five things induced release of heart and lasting peace. The Buddha told him, first, a lovely intimacy with good friends. Second, virtuous conduct. Third, frequent conversation that inspires and encourages uh, practice. Fourth, diligence, energy, and enthusiasm for the good. 
fifth insight into impermanence. I, I thought it was interesting that the first thing the Buddha allegedly says in that moment is first a lovely intimacy with good friends. And then that third one, which I think is what good friends do, frequent conversation that inspires and encourages practice. When I'm in uh, a social setting with my friends, I'm constantly asking them what they're reading, what they're watching, what they're thinking about, what in their life is really hard, what in their life is really good, and give them a chance to teach me how they're handling life. And it is deeply beneficial. And also that first one, that idea of lovely intimacy with good friends, um, our our friends here in Southern Utah, there is a lovely intimacy between them. Um, it really is a beautiful thing to kind of go like, wow, look at where this community has come to. These these people love to be in space with each other, and they are so real with each other. It is There really is no conversation you can't have. Um, and to me, that's really cool. Any I also there? think, yeah, I also think that it's really outlining a spiritual path. Uh, a deep, intimate social life is not just like a need because we're primates. It actually is a spiritual path, right? So when that friend checked me, that was a moment for me to check myself and look in the mirror and have to fix and eat my humble pie and apologize and say all those things. So I, what I love about this story that you're bringing in is that it's not just this primal need that we're doing to um, play with each other as adults and to be friends, and but um, the opportunity for our social life to be a spiritual path. And I think when I was in uh, when I was more active in religion, there were, you know, opportunities for spiritual things as you're listening to pe- maybe you're preparing a lesson or you're listening to someone else's lesson, but it wasn't, there was, there was um, less risk and there was less intimacy. So there was less growth. So when you go, when I went to church, because everybody's risking less because nobody's being full, fully vulnerable, we're all putting on a mask. Uh, yeah, you bump into each other and you learn things from each other, but uh, it was a low risk, low reward. But with my deeply intimate friends, now what Buddha's talking about here is this isn't just friends. This is a spiritual path of being intimate with other people is a mirror where you are going to have to do a lot of growth, right? Because you're learning about yourself and others and different ways to look at the world and people are checking your behavior and you're exploring things and you're pushing on boundaries. I mean, these are deeply spiritual exploring places that isn't just driven by a biological need to have friends. It's spiritual too. Yeah. You mentioned spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship requires two elements, truth and tenderness. You've hit on those with the, with that personal story. We need to be direct with each other and be soft and kind. Like that's what friendships are. Um, there are lots of times where I've disagreed with my friends. They'll say something and I can sense their blind spot or I'll say something and they sense my blind spot and they will kindly correct me. Like, Hey, you may not be aware, but what you seem to think is the normal human experience. My experience is very different than that. And so there's a way to kind of correct each other, but not hurt feelings in the midst of it. Right. And then it says here, spiritual friends are honest with one another. They have courage. They take risk. They speak from the standpoint of truthfulness, not expediency. That's a big deal. When my friends go astray, at least as far as I can see, I must speak up. And I expect the same from them as well. Yet tenderness is equally important. 
Dogen writes of the power of kind speech, speak to sentient beings as you would to a baby. Speak with as much tender love and sweetness. I can receive a true friend's criticism with loving kindness because it comes from a loving heart seeking only my benefit and well-being. And if I find I am lacking in tenderness, speaking what I consider to be the truth out of defensiveness or separateness, I have to discern this. I have to work on healing causes within myself of this breach of kindness. I need to keep my peace until I'm ready to speak with love. To me, that's a big deal. Um, It's sometimes in our being poked by something, we lash out in correction and, and, the suggestion here in this advice is maybe hold our tongue until we can come from a healthier place. And that to me seems really useful as well. I do think that both of us, because we're, you've been public for a lot longer than I have. So you've been doing this a lot longer, me more recently, but there have been times where we have um, criticized someone's worldview from a place of love in the sense that I see that you're trying to make sense of the world this way. I'm really offering you a different idea that I think is going to be better for you, a better foundation for you to build your life on because I genuinely love you. And I don't want you to keep having a faith crisis because you're finding some new spiritual guru who's going to let you down or whatever. I've seen both of us um, criticize worldviews from that place of like, Hey, I think that there's a better way to do this. I think there's a better way to do spirituality where we don't have to do that move or we don't have to believe that thing. But I've also seen both of us publicly, like not come from that place. <laughs> no, no, I, me, Wade, you're, you're really only saying like Bill does it. Cause I agree. I'm, I'm I, do, definitely I get, harsh. I, there are multiple times, uh, let's say at least five times a month. I will regret an interchange I had on Facebook where it just yeah. pulled out. It, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't offering a better idea from a place of love. And I've thought about this. And what do you think of this? I think this is better for you in your life. And I think there's a better way to do spirituality. I can do that, but I get dragged into Facebook debates and I get yeah. ugly and it's not great. And I regret it. And I have to take, Facebook breaks and put myself in jail sometimes because it's just sometimes tough because I just get so frustrated with what I see as just a really dumb idea. And they look at me like I'm crazy and it's, it's just not good. And it's not, it's not changing anybody's mind. If anything, it's making people like trust me less because I'm acting like a jerk and a hundred percent, hundred percent. I do that. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard to challenge someone's worldview from a place of love because I think that this worldview is spirituality better for you. But I I hope both of us can get better at it. I am aware of that. And I and like you, like you said, five times a month. I think Dan Hardy, who uh, made a comment earlier, I probably do it to him about five times a month. <laughs> and and so I'm aware. And I, I also want to be better. In these exchanges, as soon as I walk away from them, like I could have been much more Buddhist. I could have been so much more present and kind and still made my point but did so from a place of love and kindness rather than putting someone in their place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm determined to be better at that. And thank you for uh, mentioning that. Cause I think in social media that becomes so easy. Mm. It's just a, 
there's just a name with no no yes, real personality hard, or connection. It's hard to remember that there's a human behind what I think is a really stupid idea or really bad theology. Yeah. <laughs> yep, totally. And uh, I get caught in Facebook debates. And I actually, I enjoy debates, which is part of the problem. I really enjoy debates. And so, man, I'll waste two hours like nothing and regret it yeah. for the rest of the week because it you know, I have kids. I can't be debating people on Facebook and I'm not changing anybody's mind. And no. uh, I'm the first to admit, like, I got to do better at that. Love it. Um, Mida Suda. I don't know what that is, but it says monks. Uh, a friend endowed with seven qualities is worth associating with. So somebody's talking to the monks. Monks, a friend endowed with seven qualities is worth associating with. Which seven? He gives what is hard to give. He does what is hard to do. He endures what is hard to endure. He reveals his secrets to you. He keeps your secrets, which, by the way, I want to note, the number one thing I would suggest if you want to be a good friend to others is you recognize which of their stories are sacred and you do not go about sharing other people's sacred stories. Yeah. Um, I call it the vault, which is from Seinfeld. And I'll tell my friends like this is for the vault. Yeah. Like, yep. hundred um, percent. So he keeps your secrets. When misfortune strikes, he doesn't abandon you. When you're down and out, he doesn't look down on you. A friend endowed with these seven qualities is worth associating with. Um, in our religious system right now, there's this TV show on Hulu under the banner of heaven. And somebody reached out to me this week who was friends with Dan Lafferty prior to all of this stuff happening. And they still reach out to him once a week or so and talk to him on the phone while he's in prison. And I'm amazed at that. Like in my mind, I'm going, if one of my friends did what that person did, I just would have ended the friendship. It doesn't seem beneficial to me to, to try to make that work. And yet this person had maintained friendship over years and years and years in the midst of seeing all of that came with that. And to me, that was deeply impressive. Like mm. I don't want my friends to abandon me when I make a mistake. And in this situation, this friend didn't abandon this person who had done an atrocious mm. act. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. That reminds me of just this idea that you can only meet people as deeply as they've met themselves. So in order to, in order for me to do something like that is you first have to kind of meet the devil in you in order to be friends with someone where the devil came out, right? Kill, killed a kid. Right. And so I don't think you can do that until you've met the devil within. And I find that the, one of the best things about really doing shadow work, which we've talked about on this podcast a lot is that I can um, be friends with people and understand, or even not even be friends, but at least be more compassionate to the devil within and how that shows up in different people, because I've met that devil within myself. I remember the first time, this is, this is real vulnerability here, but I remember the first time where uh, I had a violent thought towards a child when I had postpartum depression, which I had never met that violent part of myself before. I would have totally said before that, that I'm a pacifist and I never had a violent thought in my life, but there were, there's dark nights where it's not uncommon for women to have really scary thoughts. And so 
you know, when the woman was on death row for drowning her kids in the tub, because I had met myself, I met the devil within, I was able to look at that person, not wanting to be best friends, maybe, but at least with some humanity that I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this is your life, you know, and, and look in a little bit more compassion and less judgment because I met that person within. So I think, I think the more you do shadow work, the more you're able to do what you're talking about, which is to still uh, understand people, even when they do things that are really awful, even. You're muted. You're muted. So sorry. Um, the says here, the Buddha list uh, four criteria to help us judge friends in the Sigalavada Sutta says, quote, young man, be aware of these four enemies disguised as friends, the taker, the talker, the flatterer, and the reckless companion. The taker, the taker can be identified by four things, by only taking, asking for a lot while giving little, performing duty out of fear, and offering service in order to gain something. Two, the talker. The talker can be identified by four things, by reminding of past generosity, promising future generosity, mouthing empty words of kindness, and protesting personal misfortune when called on to help. Number three, the flatterer. The flatterer can be identified by four things, by supporting both bad and good behavior indiscriminately, praising you to your face, and putting you down behind your back. And then number four, the reckless. The reckless companion can be identified by four things, by accompanying you in drinking, roaming around at night, partying, and gambling. Now, I, I don't mind a little reckless. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, yeah, I know you don't. <laughs> I, some of my funnest nights have involved those things. So, <laughs> so I'm a little, you know, and it's the, it's the thing when, when, we had, when I had a conversation with Phil McLemore on a, it might've been this podcast, but before you came on board, I know yeah, we interviewed him. I've listened to that twice because that was an interesting conversation. Because I think sometimes there's this risk that even Buddhism goes too far. It, it really, it says like, these things are bad. And my experience is that's not exactly the way I feel about it. I feel like some amounts of drinking, partying, gambling can be done responsibly. And I, I just can't get on board with advocating entirely against those. Now I want to be responsible. I want to talk about moderation and those kinds of things. But um, I, I, to me, I, I've had friends before that were rec uh, reckless and I would have defined that very differently than folks you went out and had some fun with. Mm. So anyway, yeah. for what it's worth. Yeah. I <laughs> see that conversation come up a lot in, in spiritual places because there's a lot of conversation right now in reclaiming pleasure, which I think is really healthy. America comes from a Puritan background, which means that, you know, no dancing, no drinking, no laughing, no whatever, because, uh, you know, it lets the devil in and then da, 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 da. But, um, and so we're doing this kind of reclaiming pleasure as part of being human, as a great part of being human even. And that this idea that we have to be fasting all the time and in meditation eight hours a day in order to be spiritual, you know, that's, that's a very aesthetic view. And so I think, I think everyone in this spiritual space as we're kind of trying to reclaim pleasure from our Puritan background, we're kind of seeing where that boundary is and people debate about where that boundary is, which is why I found that conversation so helpful. I, I did listen to that one twice. Um, and, and maybe for different people, it's, you know, that 
you know, that boundary may be different for different people. Some people can handle a little bit more chaos and be okay and be safe and be moderate. And some people can't. Um, but it's interesting to have that discussion that as we're reclaiming pleasure as part of being human, even part of having a spiritual life, how do we do that in a way that stays away from alcoholism and, you know, all the things that those reckless behaviors can turn into. So it's very interesting conversation. I, if anyone's listening and hasn't listened to that episode, I really recommend it. It was really, it was really interesting. And it was interesting because you were in different places. That's what made that conversation so interesting. Yeah. Love it. Um, I wanted to talk for a moment about social etiquette. We don't need to spend much time here because I think it ties into how we make and keep friends it's to me, it's always about extending grace. Um, this party I had at my house with these other three couples a week, week and a half ago. Um, there's this moment where this guy's in the hot tub. He, you know, he's only spent now an hour and a half with me. We just got back from dinner. We get in the hot tub and we're just having this great conversation. And he goes, Hey, I'm going to say something and I'm going to be really vulnerable. And um, my wife, I can't remember how she worded it, but she, she looks over at me and tells me, in some way that that's the signal we humans give when we're about to say something that we fear feeling shame over. And that seems like a no brainer, but often when people go, I'm going to be vulnerable and they say something, someone in the room makes a joke or something gets said that essentially mocks the thing that just got shared by that person. And I just want to note that when someone tells you they're going to be vulnerable you automatically should jump to this might be one of their very sacred things. Mm. This is the moment where they're trying to expose themselves to yeah, you. It's like someone's heart is open. Like don't go punching. Like yeah. someone's heart is just, you know, no protection out there. Yeah. And it led to a beautiful conversation where this person opened up about something and it was something that they felt a lot of shame over and this group held it and, and communicated like, Oh, like you do that thing we do a similar thing. Here's the thing we do. And it just made it really healthy for that person to be able to open up and talk. So just a note, when people say they're trying to share something vulnerable, yeah, it, it's one of those things that they are really fearful that you're going to not hold space for. Mm. Um, I remember having a friend come to me once and he was like, Bill, I want to tell you what my kink is. And I'm like, okay, all right. And he goes up, but I'm, I fear that you're going to shame me about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he ended up saying what it was and it was really, it was a nothing. It was, it was a common thing that I think, you know, 20% of the male population has. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, I said, that's not mine, but you know, here's mine. Mine's this thing. I said, like, you know, we all have them who like, we all get turned on and turned off by things. That's normal human behavior. There's no reason why you need to feel shame in this space as you share who you are. That's no big deal. A couple other things about grace. Uh, when someone feels they are disrupting everyone's experience. I was out at dinner with some friends um, a few weeks ago and this person about a third of the way into dinner started to feel sick, but we had made this, we had planned, we had to cancel it once and now we're coming together and do it again. And so there's a lot of pressure on this person to not mess up everyone else's night. And so this person, you could, you could see they were feeling a lot of like, I don't want to feel judgment. I don't want to feel shame. This night's not going well for me, but I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think in most situations when this kind of thing happens, we all just go quiet. We just don't, we just don't address it. Meanwhile, in everyone else's mind, 
you're going like, I hope they feel better. I really feel bad that they don't feel good, but we somehow don't know to like voice it in a way that makes them feel safe. So I, I realized kind of what was going on and I just said, Hey, like you really should do what's best for you. And there's no hurt coming over here to us. We really just care about you. And if you're not feeling well, we absolutely want to support you feeling safe and feeling okay. So let's just go ahead and like wrap this up and get you out of here so that you can be okay. And, and that's what happened. The person ended up, they uh, ended up leaving a little early and then we cut the dinner short, but there wasn't any hard feelings on our part. And I think often, even in times where there's no hard feelings, we don't seem to take the next step to relieve that person of the shame and judgment they're feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a cousin that we just so happened to be in the same place in Vegas. They came in for a, a music festival. We went to the music festival. We met up and weren't expecting it. This was a cousin from back in Ohio. And um, I had communicated. They wanted to go to breakfast with us in, in the morning. So the morning came and originally they were going to meet us at our hotel, but they were running a little late. So I texted them and said, why don't you just meet us at the restaurant? But I can't remember how I worded it, but I worded it in a way that it could have been misunderstood. So they ended up coming to the original hotel. Now they're running way late. So now we're all sitting at breakfast wanting to order and they're not there yet because they went to the wrong place first. And now they're making their way to us. I had enough wherewithal to go. They probably feel like shit right now. Mm. They're holding us up. They're feeling shame. They're probably running or walking super fast, breaking a sweat in the middle of summer in, in Vegas. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me resolve this. So I just texted her and said, um, I went back and read the text. It was easily misunderstandable. Uh, I'm really sorry for having uh, texted it in a way that caused the misunderstanding. We are just super excited for you to join us. Take your time. Don't rush. When you get here, it's going to be perfectly okay. I love you and I can't wait to see you. Yeah. If I would have read that, like my whole, like that would have just totally just. So the secret is give people that and Mm -hmm. in your interactions, start to pick up on when people feel distressed or when a social situation is that they probably are feeling distress and just go one step further to reassure them of what's in your head uh, and what you're thinking and how much you care about them and that whatever it is, is no big deal to you. Mm -hmm. It, It just goes so far, as you point out, to reduce the anxiety and distress in a single human being. And over the course of months, you can do that dozens and dozens of times. Yeah. And again, that's a spiritual practice of of empathy of I've been in that situation where I'm running to that meeting and I'm thinking I'm holding someone up and, you know, that feels stressful. And, and you jumped out of your own experience for a second to see it from someone else's experience, which is, again, going back to this idea that being in friendship with people and doing things like that is is spiritual work. Yeah. Amen. Any other thoughts? That's essentially what I've got. Yeah. I had one last thing I wanted to talk about. So one difference. So this is again, going back to Brene Brown, one difference. There's only one difference between people who report that they have love and belonging in their life and people who don't one difference. And she said, the only difference between these two groups of people, when she gets all the list of these people's lives and beliefs and all these things is the belief that you are lovable. And so there is, as part of this foundation that we're talking about, we're talking about building a foundation to meet people and then 
making the jump through vulnerability and how to do that and how this is a spiritual practice. But I do think one of the, the steps that we uh, need to talk about is that often before we can even do that, you do have to believe that you're worthy of love. And the reason that I bring this up is because this is a place where religion has a super helpful heuristic. And what I mean by heuristic is that there's some things in religion that are not quote unquote true, but the tool is more useful than not. And so it's very difficult in secular spaces to pull out the tool because religion has. So the, the example that Sam Harris uses is that if you, uh, if you're a gun person and you are looking at a gun, you never look down the barrel, right? You have this little, you have this little routine that you do as if that there's a bullet in it. And if you show that there's no bullet in this gun and you give it to a friend, they also will never look down the barrel. They'll also do this little routine as if there's a gun, as if there's a bullet in the gun. Now, the truth is you saw that there's no bullet in the gun, but the tool, the, the trick of acting like there's a bullet in the gun is safer than just knowing if there's a bullet or not. So the the, the heuristic, the tool, the ritual is actually more helpful than the quote unquote truth. So religion does have some of these things. And I think this is one of those places where religion has a little trick. Um, Brene Brown, for example, very strong belief in God. One of the things that sometimes helps people get there is the belief that God made everyone and loved and loves everyone and made them who they are. Therefore you are deeply lovable. That's a, that's a tool that uh, religion uses that is actually can be helpful for some people because it's a little shortcut you can take to believing that you are lovable. And so for those of us who are in the post-religious space and for the clients that I talk with who have lost their belief in God, you may have to do some work here to have a reason to believe that you are lovable, to build a relationship with yourself where you believe that you are worthy of love and belonging because you no longer have the shortcut of believing that God made everyone the way that they are. Therefore, you're worthy of love. So there's a tool there that some people in the post-religious world have lost and they have to build up by building up a relationship with yourself um, in order to believe that you're worthy of love. Thoughts there? Yeah, no, I like that. If folks are going to be in relationship with others, on some degree, you have to believe you have something to offer. And that that your being their friend brings something to the table. And, and often that is in recognizing whatever gifts you have, recognizing your intrinsic beauty and goodness, even in the midst of all of us having flaws and weaknesses and, and moments where we just don't do the right thing. And if we come to a situation not liking ourselves, we're going to be second guessing everything in an interaction and the real connections never going to have fertile ground to take place. Yeah. So Brene Brown studied these groups of people and thought, are the people who learned how to love each other, love themselves? Um, did they have easier lives Two parents, you know? And she said, no, like the trauma spread out across the board. Like, and she said, everyone has a story that'll break your heart. And I think that that's true. And so it wasn't that, um, 
the people who had learned that they were lovable came from better backgrounds. That wasn't true. And so as this listener added, one of the things that she gives the church credit for is that it helped her. It gave her a little tool to believe, to help her believe that she was lovable and helped her believe it. And so that may be the place when you're, when I'm, if you're listening to this and wanting to make better friends, that may be a place to do work too, because um, if you've lost that tool of believing that God made you just the way that you are, um, it may take a little bit more work to find out what are my spiritual gifts? What do I have to offer to someone? What's my, what's my any, you know, some of that is maybe what's my Enneagram number and what do I contribute? And, um, you know, building that trust within yourself, that may be a place to start because you can't have uh, love and belonging in your life if you don't believe that you're worthy of it. And so that may be a place where people also get stuck where um, it's really good then to do spiritual work of uh, learning who you are and the gifts that you have. And once you develop that, then you'll be better when you start trying to make connections to other people because you'll believe that you have something to offer. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Anything else? Nope, that's it for me. Except okay. that I just love being your friend, Bill. You're this great was friend. awesome. Same back <laughs> at you. It's been a lot of years now from a distance and now with this chance to interact on a weekly basis and I'm loving it. Um, to all you folks out there, again, maybe just to say, I, I think the two things that'll kill a friendship is gossip, you know, not handling people's sacred stories with care and being a taker. If you're always needing something, but not giving back. And we've gone over all these good qualities and, um, uh, I think community is important, especially since most of us really do need um, friends and, and social interaction to be healthy and to, to enjoy our life around us. And so my two cents, folks, is put yourselves out there. Take some risk. Try to meet somebody new. If you need community, it's not going to happen on its own. You've got to start putting yourself out there. And as you said, Britt, be vulnerable. Be yourself. Share Share who you are and give people a chance. And some will say no, but... If you do it 50 times, I'm guessing you're going to make five or 10 friends yeah. um, if you take that risk. So uh, appreciate you today. And, uh, and I hope folks got something out of this conversation. Yep. Thanks, Bill. Okay. Bye. Take it easy. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.